Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Uh, in the studio today, unfortunately, the only one is going to be me today, Jacob. Um, our other programmers are unfortunately not um, available to be in the studio today. Um, fortunately, I should be able to get this done by myself. We'll have at least, we have a pretty packed program um, with at least three um, guests, guests who will be um who I'll be interviewing over the phone today. Um, we'll be talking, you know, covering a lot around international politics, especially the recent elections in Venezuela. Um, we have, um, we're going to be interviewing two activists who have just made some overseas trips, um, one in India and the other in um, East Timor. And, you know, those were, they are going to be talking a bit about, you know, what they kind of witnessed and um, the political situ- current political situation uh, of those um, um, countries. Okay, so I guess in um, before I guess we move on, I'd like to acknowledge that um, Green Left Weekly Radio today is being broadcast to you um, from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respect um, to elders past and present, um, and that this always was, um, always will be. Um, Aboriginal land and that um, sovereignty was never ceded. Alright, I guess in terms, some of the kind of, um, before we get, our first interview will be at 7.15, I guess before we move on to that, I kind of want to talk about um, sort of two immediate kind of actions um, that are coming up. Um, probably listeners might have heard that um, uh, a refuge, a, re- a, fit, a refugee has um, died by apparent suicide um, this week on Manus Island. Um, this happened on Tuesday, May the 20, um, 22nd. His name was Salem, who was a 52-year-old um, Rohingya refugee. Um, he is, you know, the 11th refugee to die offshore in less than five years. Um, and in a bit of a quote from the Refugee Action Collective media release. Um, Salem had long suffered from mental problems, including seizures, and his physical and mental health had deteriorated, um, deteriorated badly. Um, doctors had called for him to be brought to Australia for treatment, but were ignored. Um, his was a death that was tragic, um, foreseeable and preventable, and his blood is on Peter Dutton's hands, um, said Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. And, you know, Salem um, leaves behind a wife and three children. And, you know, mind you, I'll have to explain that Peter Dutton had, you know, in all his cruelty, had not actually informed um, Salem's wife that he had actually passed away on Manus Island. And, but yet, you know, kind of like the interesting kind of response um, from the Australian government in response to this apparent suicide is, you know, Australian authorities found time to leak negative stories about Salem to the media um, but, you know, could not find time to leak and to inform the, his wife of her husband's death. You know, the callousness of a peace with the current cruelty of the Turnbull government towards a dying 63-year-old Afghan refugee on Nauru. Um, you know, he's dying on of lung cancer, palliative care, and it's not available on Nauru, and the Australian government, you know, refuses to fly him here. And I think it's also what is also striking is the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, has made no comment on Salem's death. Um, you know, this is actually a perfect opportunity for, you know, the ALP, especially the Labour Party, to make, take a clear principled stand. Um, so, but I can, I guess for listeners who are, you know, outraged about what and, you know, disturbed by this recent news, um, there is a, there is going to be a vigil happening tonight at 5.30pm, um, organised by the Refugee Action Collective uh, in Melbourne. That's going to be 5.30pm tonight at the State Library, uh, and there'll be a number of speakers, including um, 
a representative from the Australian Burmese Rohingya organisation, uh, Abdul Aziz Adam, who will be a refugee who's held on Manus, who'll be speaking from, um, by phone, and Pamela Kerr, who's a well-known refugee advocate, and we'll also have the speaker from the Greens. And, uh, if anyone by any chance, um, who's listening today, um, also happens to live in Sydney, um, there'll also be a protest vigil from 5.30 to 6.30 um, at the, on the same day today at the Sydney Town Hall. All right, I guess that's... Um, that's um, so I'll go promote that. Um, next, I'll just play a quick announcement and I'll move on to another news story um, in terms of headline news. All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on the 855am dial and it's um, currently 7.07am. <laughs> Alright, the next kind of thing, the next story I want to talk about is, um, around, uh, it's around a campaign I've been heavily involved in and this is a campaign that, um, this particular program and, you know, a number of other programs on FreeCR has spent a lot of time promoting. Um, but the state Labour government, um, has been for the past year or so, uh, been attempting to implement, um, the public housing renewal program and this is a very kind of misleading name, uh, for the program because basically what it is is they've targeted, um, up to 10 to 11, uh, well, up to 11 public housing estates, um, uh, for basically a hand um, handing over the land to private developers and, you know, and Basically, this is a big land sell-off that is a big, you know, a, a massive attack on public housing. Um, and at least 10, 11 public housing estates in the inner city of Melbourne have been affected. Um, however, they, this has not been without opposition and the Public Housing Defence Network has been organising consistent proce- protests and act, um, act, uh, actions against um, the sell-off, highlighting that, you know, what this sell-off means is basically a handover of public land to private developers that we could never get back. Um, it's, but, um, it's very likely, despite the fact that they're promising a 10% increase in so-called social housing, um, that this will actually be uh, a big net incre- um, decrease in public housing. The reason for that is because... Basically, when they re, they're going to be redeveloping the um, the they're going to be demolishing the estates, redeveloping it, going to be building um, you know several hundred public um, private apartments on their land, and there will be a number of you know social housing built onto this. But the problem is they're using the term social housing, which basically means that they could either be um, community housing run by um, run by community organisations or public housing, which is run in um, which is state owned and state managed by the state government. So the, there's a, and, you know, one of the other issues is the fact is that, um, you know, a, a lot of families, um, who are living who will be potentially relocated to less convenient locations. Um, some, you know, some residents might not be guaranteed who have been living there for years and years are, are likely not to be guaranteed a right of return to, the, to these houses. So this is really just a kind of, you know, um, basically just goes follows a trend of a long-term attack on public housing. Um, but fortunately, there will be um, a rally happening tomorrow at 12pm um, um, at the Walker Street Estate in Northcote, which is just um, on the... You can get there by the Route 86 tram and getting off at the Walker Street um, uh, Walker Street stop. Uh, and, you know, this, this will be... This rally is being supported by the new political formation, Victorian Socialists, and it will be, you know, it will be an opportunity for to highlight, you know, the colourless... Uh, you know, the, the inadequacies of this plan, why this is just a big sort of handout to private developers and why we should oppose it. Um, and that, you know, instead of um, selling off public land, you know, what we should be thinking about is, you know, how can we uh, is actually massively expand public housing? Because there's over 10,000 to 20,000 people on the waiting list alone for public housing in um, in Victoria. And what our government is doing is not actually increasing is um is not actually addressing the issue and just basically you know selling off valuable public land um that if sold we'll never be able to get back um so yeah I call on everyone who's listening uh to attend the rally tomorrow it is going to be at 12 p.m. uh at the Walker Street Estate in Northcote and yeah I think it'll be um probably one of the more important rallies to attend this week along with the refugee uh, action that's happening at 5.30 um, p.m. tonight. Um, now, I guess um, 
maybe this is just something just came from uh, in the news um, just early this morning. Uh, so probably list, uh, mum, some listeners might have heard that um, in terms of what's happening in international affairs and the United States, um, the, U- um, the U.S. and North, the United States and North Korea have you know, been in sort of a negotiation kind of period. Apparently, there were some peace talks um, that have been made between there were North Korea and South Korea at this point, um, and the United States was booked um, was scheduled to have a historical summit with um, North Korean. Uh, leader Kim Jong-un, uh, which was scheduled for next um, month. Um, but the recent news that's just come in is that Donald Trump has essentially called off the historical summit um, with North Korean leader, um, um, you know, citing Pyongyang's open hostility and that, you know, the US military is ready in the event of any reckless acts by North Korea. So this is a bit of a, I think, a bit of a disturbing development. I mean, the implications is that, you know, it goes back to the kind of status quo of this, of, you know, the US, United States preparing for, oh, you know, outright open war with North Korea. Um, and we have to also acknowledge that you know, North Korea is a weak state compared, is in a much weakened state compared to, um, to the United States and would have no, you know, if the US were to be, to participate in an act of aggression against um, North Korea, then North Korea would have no chance and we have the, you know, potential threat of nuclear war. So I think, you know, any of this kind of attempts, um, you know, at warmongering by, um, by Donald Trump should be, you know, staunchly opposed. And um, I think this recent news, which you can read in more detail on ABC and other mainstream news outlets, um, uh, is not a very encouraging development, encouraging development. Okay, so um, I might go go play. I might before our first interview, I might just go play a quick song. Um, Get up, stand up by Bob Marling. All right, so we have um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It's um, seven eighteen a.m. on the eight five five a.m. dial. Uh, so in on the line um, we have Federica Fontes. Um, he is a regular commentator. Uh, and writer for Green Left Weekly, um, specifically does a lot of um, work on Latin America. He's also written for Venezuela Analysis and has, you know, um, written, um, has, you know, visited Venezuela on a number of occasions. Um, so we're going to be talking to him about the recent um, results of the election in Venezuela and maybe talk a bit about some of the, you know, accusations against the Venezuelan government and, you know, the electoral process. So good morning, Fred. Uh, good morning, and thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. All right, so I guess I want to, um, can you give a bit of a sort of summary of the kind of election results in Venezuela, and maybe then talk about a bit about the political implications of these results, especially in light of the, you know, this high, the opposition? Certainly. Look, uh, first to begin, it's, you know, I think it's important to point out the, the background to these elections, uh, particularly in light of the fact that uh, a lot of the... Uh, Quite a few important foreign governments, such as the U.S., uh, Canada, and some of the European Union uh, countries, are now uh, refusing to recognise the result of these elections. Uh, these elections essentially come about in large part uh, due to the protests uh, that occurred last year. Uh, listeners might remember that for about three, four months uh, in the first half of last year, there was a, a wave of often violent protests against the government. Um, one of the key demands uh, at that time. Uh, was for the Nicolas Maduro government to organise early elections. Elections, uh, according to the constitution, are not to be held until the, the later this year and towards the end of this year. Uh, but the protests were demanding early elections. As arising out of those protests, there was a process of dialogue uh, between the government and opposition parties that occurred uh, in the second half of last year. And um, amongst those, again, uh, discussion points was the question of, of early elections. And agreement was reached uh, at that meeting uh, to hold elections in, in April this year. Uh, unfortunately, however, just before the agreements were to be signed, the, the opposition pulled out. Uh, many suspect uh, under pressure from, from the United States uh, and didn't sign on uh, to the proposal for the early elections, exactly what, what they had been calling for. Um, the government, however, said that they were still willing to go ahead with the early elections. Uh, in that context, uh, Henry Falcon, uh, as the main 
candidate from the opposition, uh, together with a couple of others who ran the election, said they would be willing to participate, but however, would wanted a bit of extra time, and hence why well, we ended up with the date of May 20 uh, for, for these elections. Through this whole process, uh, once we the election campaign began, the main opposition parties decided to boycott the elections, uh, a position that was also held by, uh, as I mentioned, governments such as the United States, Canada, uh, and a range of right-wing governments uh, in the region who uh, said that these, these elections were, were not legitimate uh, in their eyes. What we saw uh, happen on May 20 was an electoral result uh, where uh, roughly about 48% of the electoral uh, population uh, or the electoral uh, or the electorate turned out to vote, uh, with Maduro winning with about uh, 6.2 uh, 2 million, 6.2 million votes, uh, roughly about 67, 68 uh, percent of the vote in the context, as I said, of of an opposition boycott, uh, where the the main opposition candidate uh, in this context, uh, Henry Falcon, uh, was only able to get uh, just shy of about two million votes, uh, roughly 20 percent, a bit over 20. 20% of the vote. This is the, the context for, for the vote, uh, the, the actual result, a result that I, I should add as um, not being challenged by the uh, opposition candidates, while whilst, uh, uh, in particular Henry Falcon has been very critical of the electoral... Yeah, and I guess the question kind of following from that um, is in the mainstream media, um, some of the analysis of the Venezuelan uh, election is basically that, oh, yes, it's a completely flawed process and, you know, all this this is, was a rigged election that, you know, is solidifying, um, you know, Maduro's kind of position as a dictator of uh, Venezuela. And also, it's also come at, in response, the United States has also... Um, threatened or has um, imposed sanctions on economic sanctions on Venezuela. So I guess, you know, your kind of analysis of in your kind of response to that, Fred. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, apologies, I'm not exactly sure where it cut off, uh, but just, just to clarify, so in, in the end, the, the result uh, saw a, a voter turnout of about 48% of the vote uh, of the electoral population, uh, a context in which Maduro got 6.2 million uh, plus votes, uh, roughly 67, 68% of the vote, um, uh, with the main opposition candidate, Henry Falcon, uh, trailing with, with about two, two, or slightly under, uh, 2 million votes. Uh, what, what can we say about the results? Well, well, the first thing is that, uh, whilst there have been many criticisms made about the electoral process, uh, in general, in terms of issues such as, for instance, some opposition candidates being barred from being able to run, some parties being able to, uh, being barred from being able to, um, uh, appear on the ballot paper, things like that. Uh, some criticisms of which are legitimate, others of, of which are not. Uh, what, what is not in question uh, is the actual vote count in, at the end of the day. Uh, this is a, a electoral, very transparent electoral process, uh, one that is, uh, has several auditing processes, and one in which uh, all of the opposition candidates, as I said, whilst they may have had their criticisms of how the elections were held, uh, have certainly not questioned uh, the actual vote turnout and the actual uh, uh, result of, of the votes itself. Uh, instead, they more refer to uh, questions of um, perhaps voter intimidation, uh, the kind of things that quite often actually occur uh, in, in Latin American uh, elections, things that, of course, uh, should be criticised, uh, should be uh, paid attention to, uh, but when we're not, no, we, we're certainly no evidence has been presented whatsoever that we're, we're talking here about uh, forged elections. In fact, so much so that if one actually looks closely at the votes um, and one adds the, 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 the fact that uh, the, the two opposition candidates together, the two main opposition candidates that ran in these elections, uh, polled uh, about 30, 33% of the vote, uh, the fact that the main opposition parties decided to boycott the vote, uh, what these elections actually showed is that perhaps if the opposition itself had decided to actually run a unified candidate uh, and, 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 and campaign in these elections, it's, it's highly likely that they would have actually have won uh, these elections, uh, given the, the context of the economic crisis in, in the country and, and the impact that's had on the support uh, for the government and, and for, for Nicolas Maduro. But I think what, what we've really seen is that uh, whilst uh, the US, Canada, right-wing governments in Latin America have been very quick to criticise the elections, uh, a vote as supposed to have been anti-democratic, are uh, really behind this discourse of defending democracy in Venezuela. What they're seeking uh, is an anti-democratic outcome uh, to the current polarised situation in Venezuela. 
uh, far from simply wanting to uh, contest elections and win, uh, what something they could have done on May 20. Uh, instead, what they are seeking to do is find a situation where they'll be able to remove Maduro uh, through an un- undemocratic, unconstitutional means, uh, install a transitional government, whether that be through military coup, whether that be through uh, some kind of uh, outside intervention, uh, whether that be by uh, worsening the situation within Venezuela and provoking some kind of uh, popular revolt um, that, that they can ju- use to justify uh, the ousting of, of a democratically elected government in Venezuela in order to implement uh, what, what their real agenda is. And, and we see exactly, and they've revealed this very clearly, both by their rejection of the vote uh, and then the fact that only days after the vote, the US government and a number of other countries have announced that they are either threatening to or have already began to implement even tighter sanctions on, on Venezuela, sanctions which, of course, are only going to worsen the economic situation, of course, are only going to more impact on the poorer uh, people of the country, and even British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson himself you know, basically admitted, saying that, look, we recognise that sanctions are bad because they, in the end, hurt the people that, that, that we're supposedly uh, seeking to, to help. Uh, but, you know, perhaps it's worth paying the, paying the pain in the short term uh, for, for, a, for a long-term game, and so that's what we're seeing now, uh, is, is the international the so-called international community, uh, which in this case really just means a couple of rich, powerful nations, uh, using uh, their belief, uh, their, their, their assertion that these elections are illegitimate uh, to seek an undemocratic uh, outcome for Venezuela. Although I should add to that one, uh, you know, in terms of the actual international community, many countries around the world uh, had sent observers to these elections, uh, African Union, the Caribbean community, the Bolivarian Alliance of uh, Peoples of Our Americas, uh, together with uh, trade unions, parliamentarians from the European Union, uh, were there to observe the elections and, and recognise the fact that these were these were uh, elections, uh, transparent elections, uh, where the result was a, a legitimate result, um, and have you know come out and, and supported uh, the right of the Venezuelan people to decide uh, their own government and president. I guess um, maybe because um, there's quite a lot there that I kind of want to follow up on. Um, you know, what is what is kind of like the current? Because um, Venezuela has been kind of in a bit of a crisis, polarized state for quite a while. Um, and so, what is really kind of the current kind of state? Um, you know, of of the kind of economic crisis that's um, happening in Venezuela, and what is ultimately you know. Because you said something interesting before that you know if the if, if the opposition uh, you know had actually got there had got them got together it's possible um, you know that they could have potentially won is there does that indicate that there's some kind of dwindling popularity um, from Maduro and what might be kind of the reasons for that? Yeah, well, let's start with with the, with the second point. I, I mean, obviously, these are things that you know one can only uh, sort of draw projections from. You know, voter turnouts, and, and no one can say definitively what would have happened if the opposition had not a boycott. But I think there is very strong evidence that can be presented, uh, whether we look at the polling, whether we look at the actual vote, uh, considering the fact that the main opposition parties are boycotted. Uh, and, and, even, and we take into consideration even uh, President Maduro himself on, on his victory night speech uh, acknowledged the fact that he, he also believes that the opposition probably would have won. Uh, if they, they had, a, had a not boycotted the vote, there's very strong uh, indications that yeah, the opposition would have won this vote. On top of that, on top of just simply looking at the opposition's vote, it's also important to acknowledge the decline in the vote for, for the Bolivarian process for, for Nicolas Maduro. We, we've essentially seen a scenario where in 2012 we had uh, Hugo Chavez in his last elections uh, win over 8 million votes. Uh, following Chavez's death in April 2013, we had Nicolas Maduro win uh, over 7 million votes. Uh, I think it was about 7.5 million. Uh, and these elections, uh, Maduro was only able to win 6.2 million votes. Uh, so we've seen, obviously, in overall terms, the number of votes have declined. And this is in a context where the actual you know, uh, electorate itself has expanded from roughly about you know, 18, 19 million uh, to 20, 20.5 million uh, potential voters. Uh, what, what, what this means is the Bolivarian Revolution's vote has declined from about 43% of the overall voting population uh, to about 30%. Uh, now, 
In terms of if we just simply want to look at it in the electoral terms, this is still far superior to what many other elections occur. I mean, take, for example, the most critical of, of, of the Venezuelan elections, the, the United States. I mean, regularly, the United States has less than 50% turnout. And you know, we've seen, for instance, President Trump be elected even though he lost the popular vote. Uh, so if we want to look at it simply in terms of the electoral uh, numbers, uh, the Maduro government clearly won the elections clearly is the biggest political force. But if we're talking about a, a transformed society, one that's based on empowering people, involving them in everyday politics, uh, this is a serious serious problem uh, that the government is facing, the fact that they're losing their support uh, over the last six years. And there's no doubt that why, why they're losing their support is because of the extreme economic situation uh, that's occurring in Venezuela. One, that's caused by a variety of factors. Uh, the government is to blame, yes, the opposition is to blame, yes. The drop in oil prices is to blame, yes. But I think what we're finding today in Venezuela is a situation where overwhelmingly that, that still solid but dwindling base of support for the government, for the revolution, has said, look, in the last nine months, we have voted for you, for the National Constituent Assembly, to empower you to reform the constitution, deal with the political crisis that was afflicting the country last year in terms of the violent protests that I mentioned before. We have voted to give you the majority of mayoral ships, we have voted to give you the majority of governorships, and we've now voted for you to be present. Now you must immediately act to resolve this economic situation. Uh, otherwise, I, you know, I think there's very clear indications that the people, you know, even those that stood today have been very supportive of the Bolivarian process uh, and of the government, uh, will begin to turn against Maduro. Right. Okay, that's all, um, that's all really interesting. I guess um, probably running a bit out of, of time now. So what are kind of any kind of final comments you kind of like to make? Um, you know, maybe your own personal comments on sort of, you know, is it on which way forward for Venezuela or kind of like, you know, other kind of implications that are coming out for this um, election results that you haven't really mentioned? Sure. Well, look, I think in terms of, you know, which which way forward and, you know, what what happens next, there's two things to say. As I finish with the last question, I think there's no doubt the government must begin to take immediate measures to alleviate the economic situation in Venezuela today. Um, whilst it's, there's no doubt that the situation cannot simply be blamed on the government, uh, as the government itself has, has talked about, you know, there, there is an economic war being waged against the government. Um, the reality is that the way people are viewing it now is, look, if, if there's a war going on, then, you've, then you have to fight back. Now, there's no point being involved in a war and not fighting. And many, even of the strongest supporters of the government, feel that at best they've been inadequately fighting back uh, and at worst have not been fighting back in the context of an economic war seeing you know, hyperinflation, the deep depression in terms of economic growth, um, you know, real, real impact in terms of people's ability to just, be, uh, you know, get on with, with, with everyday life. What is it, the implications, though, beyond Venezuela, and I suppose for those that are supportive of democracy and peace uh, in Venezuela, you know, well, you know, no doubt we've, we've got to be open about these these issues. You know, there's, it's not a question of, you know, we, we can't be critical of what's going on in Venezuela or we have to hide the fact that there's a very serious situation. We should absolutely, unlike the media, the U.S. government, and all those who want to see democracy destroyed in Venezuela, speak the truth uh, about what's happening. Uh, but I think as, as part of that, our most critical task, if we, we're serious about defending democracy and the rights of the people, is to oppose these attempts by governments to essentially uh, economically strangle the life out of the country through the economic sanctions, through refusing to recognise these elections, which, as I said, uh, there's no doubt that about the vote. There's no doubt about the vote tally, about the result, who, who was elected. Uh, these were elections... Um, that, that were recognised, that, that were being recognised by the vast majority of countries in the world. Uh, of course, the media presents it as the international community has refused to accept them because, according to them, it's only the US that matters. Uh, but most of the countries around the world have recognised these. Most of the countries around the world have repeatedly voted in the United Nations to oppose the economic sanctions that are having a very deep and dire impact on an already very critical economic situation. And so we, we need to be really telling our governments to, to if, we're, if we're serious about wanting to support democracy and the people of Venezuela, well, we should, you know, end these sanctions. Uh, we should be providing aid uh, to, to Venezuela. We should be recognising this government and promoting a, a peaceful outcome. 
Uh, unfortunately, I think what, 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 what the actions of the US, Canada and other countries have exposed is really what they seek is a, a thoroughly undemocratic and what will undoubtedly be a very, very bloody outcome. Uh, that is some kind of unconstitutional transitional government that comes in to wipe away all vestiges of, of the, the popular process known as the Bolivarian Revolution. There's really, you know, uh, been a, a key integral part of uh, involving Venezuelans core in the political process of being able to provide social programs uh, to these sections of society, uh, getting rid of all that uh, in, in order to, you know, bring about a uh, the kind of democracy that the US and Canada likes, one where, they, you know, no matter who runs their candidate, always wins. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, um, Fred, um, for being on our program. And, um, yeah, we might talk to you some other time next, um, the next major development in Venezuela happens. Um, but, yeah, thanks for being on our show. All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it's 7.40 a.m. and we had just interviewed um, Federica Fontes um, from Green Left Weekly about um, the recent um, results in Venezuela, kind of like the current political situation and, you know, kind of what way forward. Uh, kind of a probably what we, that interview probably gave a much, you know, different line um, from what the mainstream, you know, mainstream media says about um, Venezuela, which is always, you know, quite distorted and always appears to kind of be always kind of in sort of favour of the kind of interests of the United States. Now, I guess um, we have another interview um, in around four to five minutes. So I guess I want to talk just about a recent um, news uh, news story just related to the union movement. Um, and... This follows the, the government's criminal case against um, the CFMU officials John Sector and Sean Bedlam, which you know ended in uh, you know embarrassing collapse. And now unions following um, this court case are calling for a repeal of the draconian um, secondary boycott laws. And one of the to give a bit of background and explanation for what um, what this means is sympathy strikes are one of the most commonly, as it's written here in Green Left Weekly, you know, one of the most commonly forms of secondary boycott. Uh, they involve a union taking industrial action to force a company to cease trading with another company until the targeted company agrees to industrial demands. Um, the, in, this law against secondary boycotts interferes with um, the right of workers to campaign effectively. Um, you know, it, it, the CFMU has been fined over, you know, $10 million, um, for its boycotts and blockades. It organised against concrete, um, um, company Borel during, um, the union's high profile dispute with Grocon. Um, Sector said the law against secondary boycotts means that, you know, if a union, if a, if a union or members are being oppressed, you can't step in to help out. I think it is a very bad law and it was brought in by a, a very ultra-conservative government It should be repealed. And, uh, you know, it's not just in term, it's not just, you know, the CFMU speaking out against this, against this. The International Labour Organization has warned Australia that the ban on secondary boycott goes behind, beyond a permissible prohibition and interferes with the right to strike. It said under international law, International Labour Con- Organization Convention number 87, sympathy strikes are prepared, provided the original strike is lawful. And on May um, 18th, um, the ACTU's response said that, you know, the Australian law is out of step with global standards in our, our bans and restrictions on industrial action, including so-called secondary actions. Um, the International Labour Organization has called on the government to review these laws, but they have not. Uh, so, you know, this is really, um, but it's kind of the, the basic of the story. Uh, Following this, the, the kind of the case um, that you know thankfully failed against uh, uh, the government's criminal case against the CFMU um, officials John Sector and Shaw Redden, given that ended in inquiry, now they're kind of using the union movement is now using that momentum to basically make this demand that you know shouldn't it it, it should not be illegal for you know um, for the union uh, for unions to take industrial action to force companies from seizing trading with another company. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we're going right into our second interview um, for the program. Um, so on the line, I have Ron Guy. Um, Ron Guy has been, you know, a long time 
you know, solidarity activist who, who is, um, spent, um, who spent a lot of his, um, time in the activist world in, with international solidarity with a lot of, um, different countries, including West Sahara has been one of the things he's been heavily involved in. And he's also, I think, in historically been, um, heavily involved in the campaign around solidarity with East Timor. Um, so Ron Guy has just retu- recently returned from a trip to East Timor. Um, and he, you know, I think pretty sure he observed the, uh, recent elections that happened there in East Timor. So, uh, good morning, Ron Guy. Uh, good morning, Jacob. All right. So I guess the first kind of question is, I mean, can you give us a bit of a background on politics in East Timor, kind of the current situation? Then we can go talk then about, you know, the election results and, you know, kind of what you witnessed there. Um, yes. Okay. Now, uh, I'm not an expert in, in, uh, these things. So as far as the elections go, um, sorry if I, uh, if I, uh, Quote something wrong. Don't hold it against me. Um, uh, I guess my my uh, involvement has been back in the uh, back in the eighties. I did a lot of work for, with the, uh, the campaign for Timor. Um, the demonstrations. Australia was doing the doing the wrong thing then, um, uh, trying to stop the, the Timorese coming from here. They, they shut down the communication. Of uh, all the horrific things that were happening to the, the Timorese population, um, so for me, uh, this was the first time I visited as a so I went as uh, an observer with the Australian Timor Leste Election Observer Mission that was um, uh, organised by Damien Kingsbury through Deacon, and the uni also sent some uh, people as well, uh, completely volunteer. So it was my First experience back there, but the reason for the elections uh, this time was um, that they they have uh, 65 seats in parliament. It's not uh, uh, it's uh, not compulsory to vote, and this time they had an 81 percent um, turnout, but uh, uh, which is pretty amazing when you compare that to uh, uh, countries that uh, haven't got compulsory votes. Um, like a, like America, um, but the the reason that they had an election, um, which is not long, only uh, about eight months after the last one, was that uh, supply was being um, uh, frozen in Parliament because of um, fights between parties. So the the, the President Francesco Guterres uh, dissolved the Parliament and called for. For elections again, so for early elections. Um, so the main two two campaigners were uh, Fretland and uh, an alliance for change progress, which is uh, called the uh, the uh, AMP. Um, so really, I think you've got to get about 35 uh, of the seats to to be able to rule in your own own right. So there was. Um, uh, I guess the concern was there'd been uh, the elections that they've had in the past. There's been a little bit of violence uh, around uh, the, the, the voting, um, and this time uh, there was a uh, when they were doing their uh, campaigning, there was there was a, a couple of um, clashes, but uh, nowhere near as it has been before. Um, so I think there was about 18 injured in one clash and about uh, uh, six hospitalised, you know, somewhere around that figure. But this is this is a, a <laughs> believe it or not a good outcome because <laughs> it wasn't as bad as it usually usually is. Um, so yeah, so as I said, the the, the outcome of this one is is uh, the AMP, which is uh, Zana. Um, which is Anna Guzman's um, group is, that came out at um, 34, I think. 34. I got that right. Um, and you write these down here. And um, Fretland got 23. Mm. And the other two parties, there was the Democratic Party of uh, five, and the uh, Democratic Development Forum of three. Mm. 
Oh yeah. So can you tell me, you know, as a, as kind of, um, someone who was a you know tourist um, of an observer of this, kind of what are kind of some particular kind of things that you observed about kind of East Timor? <laughs> Um, as far as uh, as far as just the, uh, observing the elections, or as yeah, uh, observing the elections and the kind of general kind of feeling that you got. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we were down in uh, Likasar, which is about thirty kilometres, 30, thirty to forty kilometres um, from from Dili, and the, the the roads down, the roads all over Dili are in shocking condition, um, so the. So to travel that far is about an hour and ten minutes over uh, rough roads. There's a, there's um, apparently, uh, according to the other observers, there, there there is sort of a you can see a bit of wealth starting to come through. So there is a, a bit of an increase in the the middle class and a little bit of um, the money that's being uh, filtered around. Um, but uh, you know there is a lot of uh, hungry people doing it. It's hard. It's a, uh, they lost a third of their, up to a third of their population over the, over the struggle. So the, the, uh, populations, uh, uh, the recent population is very young, but they're very enthusiastic with their elections. So when, uh, so we were accepted quite well there. Um, and, you know, they're, um, uh, they're, uh, a good, friendly people. What interested me a little bit um, was that because because of the the history, um, I sort of thought that they'd there'd be a lot of resentment to Indonesian uh, people there. But uh, we met uh, uh, young girls that had Indonesian boyfriends, um, businessmen, Indonesian with the the Timor Leste people. And there wasn't any animosity, so I was a bit. I'm living in a time warp, you know. I mean, us Australians uh, still have, uh, uh, resent the Japanese from the war, so we've got long memories. But over there, they're uh, they were they were quite, um, you know, they're quite accepting of the Indonesian people, and there's no animosity at all, which is mm. we're seeing it's only what, uh, 25, 28 years back from all of that horror. Um, but the reason put forward was that uh, the Timorese didn't exactly hate the Indonesians. They hated the police and the army and uh, the authorities that uh, were doing such horrific things. And they had that in common with the Indonesian people who uh, had the same oppression from uh, from the Indonesian police and uh, military and so I guess that uh, does make sense there, but that uh, that did surprise me. There's, um, I guess, uh, what else? There was um, um, there was a lot of enthusiasm around the place. Um, their wages are uh, the minimum wage is 115 US dollars. Their currency is US dollars, uh, 115 dollars a month, which is not um, a lot, and. Uh, Maybe to put that in the perspective of, uh, of uh, some of your viewers, um, it costs about three to four dollars for a uh, beer in uh, a lot of the places. Um, you can you can get uh, uh, beers in the cheaper places for a, for an American dollar, but uh, it doesn't make money go very far if it's one hundred and fifteen dollars um, uh, um, a month. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know how much time we've got. Yeah, well, we have another um, five minutes. So I guess the last thing kind of we want to talk about is now you've t- kept talking a bit about your kind of personal experiences of um, what you kind of observed about East Timor and your trip there. But I guess um, I want to get um, here kind of like you know what you know as a as an observer of the recent elections that happened in East Timor. What what do you think are kind of like some of the implications flowing out of of the kind of official results and you know. What is kind of really sort of what what um, what is kind of any kind of comments on sort of what what do you think is going to come out of this? Um, well, uh, hopefully they'll uh, the parties will work together. Um, obviously, the AMP is uh, they've shown that they've got clear support. 
Um, the numbers didn't change dramatically, but it just, uh, I guess, solidified that the people uh, want the government to to work. So presumably um, uh, they'll be a bit more harmonious. Uh, the policies between the parties didn't seem to differ very much. It was just infrastructure was their, their, uh, their main drive of what they were uh, putting forward. Um, and of course that goes into the, the road building, um, that the Chinese are in, uh, involved with over there. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's probably where they'll go. I think, uh, the, the other issue is with, with Guzmao is that they, um, they want to, uh, they want to bring the pipeline across which somebody said it would cost about six to eight billion dollars to run a pipeline across, so that they could process uh, the oil and gas onshore in in Timor. So that's a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess, an economic debate that Timor's got with the uh, with the companies in, involved for extracting their resources. Um, so I'm not sure how that will play out. Um, I guess uh, on a, a note there. If anybody is interested, we did catch up with um, the, with uh, Union Aid Abroad or a feeder there that are working on a, a few projects. There's a lot of uh, different Australian groups that are doing different projects, but one of theirs is with the women's group to uh, uh, for uh, domestic uh, workers to uh, unionise them so that their um, financial uh, arrangements are, are kept in in check as far as um, not being taken advantage of uh, with their wages, so um, so they need support. If anybody wants to uh, donate uh, some money for the women's cause uh, through uh, Union Aid Abroad, Samantha Bond is now is uh, in Melbourne. She's uh, uh, works at the office, uh, at the feeder office here, so she's got a good contact with them uh, um, over there. Um, but I guess that's the that's the thing is to try and remove uh, that poverty and exploitation that that, uh, that uh, can happen in growing uh, young nations. Um, yeah, so uh, um, I guess that's you know the seventy percent of the population um, are working in the uh, agrarian areas. So I guess that's a place that they're trying to build up, but um, it's uh, probably, you know, naturally everybody knows the, the coffee, so we went up into the coffee region and had a look through there, and um, I guess buying Timorese uh, coffee sort of supports that ag- agrarian uh, um, uh, process. Um the other thing that was interesting is that the, because of the disputes going on, there was uh, uh, five, five Chinese uh, fishing boats that have been, um, that have been uh, placed on. Well, they've been stopped from fishing, so uh, because they were going out uh, taking shark fins and uh, and uh, sort of destroying the, the the fishery area. So they've been. Uh, impounded uh, off Dili until the, uh, presumably something will be sorted out once they've uh, finished these elections. Um, so that, that's just a, an interesting um, part of that we observed over there. Um, yeah, uh, what was your other question? I've forgotten. Oh, well, I guess we're going, um, we're running out of time now. We only have like 40 seconds left. So do you have like any kind of final comment like you, you'd like to make? Um, no, just that, uh, you know, I highly recommend, um, people going up to, uh, to assist in their tourist trade up. There's a fledgling uh, sort of tourism up there. It's, um, the accommodation is not our five star. Uh, stuff, but it's, uh, it's very, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's good to go up to Bellabo uh, and, uh, see where the five Australian journalists were killed and, um, yeah, so it's, there is a, a uh, tourist wise, there is a few things that, uh, to check out while you're there. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, um, Ron, and, um, thank you so much for 
give, talking a bit about your your experiences as a as an election observer for um, East Timor. Okay. Right. Have a good day. Yes, bye. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and it's 8 a.m., and so that's pretty much time for the activist calendar. Um, so I'll be giving you a report on, uh, so I'll be telling you about what's coming up in terms of um, political events. Um, so I guess the first thing I want to mention is um, there will be a vigil for um, the refugee, for the Rohingya refugee that um, died in on Manus Island. It's going to be happening at 5.30pm tonight at the State Library. And I uh, highly encourage you, it's organised by the Refugee Action Collective, and I highly encourage you all to attend if you're able to. Um, also happening tonight will be a public meeting, um, the case for progressive populism, um, which is going to be a forum hosted by the new international bookshop at the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South, and that start gonna, will start at 7pm. Um, <coughs> this Saturday, uh, there will be a, a number of events happening all, all at different times, so potentially you can attend all these events or, um, at once, um, so there'll be a community protest, stop Labor's public housing sell-offs, um, and they'll be at 2, 12 noon at the corner of Walker and High Streets in Northcote, and it's hosted by the Public Housing Defence Network and the Victorian Socialists. So that's at 12pm um, at the Walker Street Estate. Um, rally, there'll be a rally in March, um, Solidarity with Afrin, um, Turkey Get Out of Syria, No Australian Ties with Turkey, and The Silence, and they'll be happening at 2pm at the State Library, and it's organised by the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre of Victoria and Australians for Kurdistan. There'll be a, a film and speeches for an Australian National Day um, from 4 to 7pm at the Resistance Centre, Le- Level 5407 Swanson Street in the city. Um, on also happening um, tomorrow on Saturday will be a benefit gig for Afrin, Seymour Afrin, and it will feature a film screening and bands, and it will be a fundraiser for um, refugees who have been displaced um, by the Turkish state in Afrin. And they'll be at 5pm at the Melbourne Anarchist Centre at 62 High Street, Northcote. Um, Wednesday, um, the 30th of May, there'll be a forum on renters' rights, um, where we'll be discussing updates on the Making Rent, Make Renting Fair campaign and reforms to the Residential Tenancy Act, featuring, um, the local Greens MP Lydia Forbes, Mark O'Brien, Tenants Union, Annie Martini, Matana Lil, who's up from the Environment Victoria, and they'll be happening at 6pm at the Northcote Town Hall in High Street in Northcote. Um, some other events that will be happening will be the Big um, Red Book Fair at 2018, um, you know, will be, which will be a big book sale at the New International Bookshop at 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. And um, there'll be, you know, people are saying that you can come along for heaps of sheep books across all genres, a barbecue lunch, and, you know, meet an uh, opportunity to meet like-minded community group um, reps. Representatives, and of course, there'll be plenty of left-wing politics, history, and sociology texts. Um, there'll be uh, a call of the Long Walk at 2 p.m. at the Federation Square in the city, hosted by um, Michael Long, the Long Walk Foundation, and the AFL. And for more info, info visit the Long Walk on Facebook. Um, on Sunday, May June. June the 3rd, there'll be Mambo Day, um, celebrating the 26th anniversary of Mambo Day. Um, they'll be at 12 noon at the Federation Square. And there'll also be a follow-up event, um, Mambo Day 2, an afternoon of music and conversation happening from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, uh, which is at 110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. <sighs> On Thursday, June the 7th, um, there'll be... Uh, a public forum on welfare quarantine in remote Australia um, that's basically feature activist academics and ordinary citizens who have lived with um, with the CDC discuss the scheme and you know does the evidence support the extension of the program is there a dark side to the regime and in choosing the locations for the scheme to be rolled out is remoteness a proxy for race and so that'll be happening from 6.15 to 7.15 PM at on Thursday, June the seventh, at the Wheeler Centre, which is at one seventy six Little Longsdale Street in the city. Um, entry is free and bookings are essential. 
Um, there'll be a rally our quids a day for Palestine. Um, they'll be happening at 1.30 p.m. at the State Library at Swanson Street in the city. And for more info, phone 0403-122097. Um, and also happening is um, the Green Left Weekly annual comment debate discussing the topic Will Street Tweet, Trump tweet us into oblivion. Uh, it will be emceed by Rod Contract and it features a number of comedians including Sean Bedlam, Hell Shard, Gabe Hogan, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Fred Hamster. Um, and that will be, tickets are, will be range from 50 to, um, to the lowest price being $15. Um, there'll be dinner and bar rabble and the doors open at 6.30pm and so they'll be at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Sydney Road um, and Dawson Street in Brunswick. Um, there'll also be a pill testing fundraiser at 8pm at the Gasso Media at 484 Smith Street on that same night and it's organised sort of jointly with Victorian Socialists and Grassroots Gatherings. On Sunday, um, June 24th, there'll be a rally in March, Unite to Stop the Right, 11am at Shrades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Street in Carlton South. On Saturday, July the 7th to the July the 8th, there'll be a conference, Refugee Action Network, um, by, um, organised by them, and it'll be at the ANMF building, 55535 Elizabeth Street in the city. So they'll be happening on Sunday, um, Sunday June the seventh, July seventh, and Sunday July eighth to Sunday July eighth. Um, and also happening will be the big um, student sustainability conference, which is probably the biggest um, youth conference around environmental justice. Um, and so they'll be happening from Sunday seventh of July to the Wednesday the July Wednesday the eleventh of July. Um, and I'll. Yeah, search up student sustainability to find out like our updates. At this point, we haven't got a venue completely confirmed yet, but we should have announced it on that soon. And we'll definitely be doing an interview with one of the organisers of the program about the conference. Nope. I think I'm not so sure what's going on. Um, but, yeah, basically, I don't think I'm able to get him on um, the line due to a technical error. So I might um, have to spend... Possibly the rest of the program, um, talking, um, giving some news articles from the latest Green Left Weekly. I, and we'll possibly have that interview, um, coming up, um, next week. Um, so, uh, apologies, listeners. Alright, so, um, give a bit of a kind of a news update on the situation on Palestine. Um, there's just been an article in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, criticizing, um, Australians' kind of response, um, to the recent kind of, you know, uh, incidents and um, um, you know, outright kind of genocidal behaviour by the Israel state, um, and that you know Australia is continuing to avoid any possibility that might stand up for Palestinian so- sovereignty and human rights with its behaviour at the United Nations. And there was basically at the United Nations there was in an inquiry put forward. Um, uh, to hold an inquiry onto Israeli's actions into Gaza and uh, in Gaza in the recent weeks, um, and you know Australian politicians, for a bit of context, have you know, only responded in mixed ways to the blood toll shed and death toll in Gaza, while the momental horror of recent weeks seems to have subsided or at least disappeared from the mainstream. Um, Israel is even now continuing to you know shell uh, Gaza and block Gaza and fishing boats from going to work. And Australia, in response to this inquiry, were one of the only two nations to vote against them, um, this motion, which you know passed 29 to 2, with 14 abstentions. Um, you know, Labor, you know, front um, brencher Anthony Albanese has called for, for the Malcolm Turnbull to explain why Australia um, voted against in, independent inquiry, which, given the damage done to Israel's reputation by its violent response to unarmed protests would surely benefit Israelis and Palestinians. He added um, he added concerns about the expansion of Israel's illegal settlement, saying that undermines the, um, the two-state solution. Um, but then in the, in the Screen Left Weekly article, you know, Albanese gave no, no hint on whether the precedent set by the passing of a motion to recognise the state of Palestine, New South Wales, Labour Conference will be echoed at the National Conference, but repeated his personal call for a two-state solution along recognised borders. Uh, 
However, you know, while, you know, the Labour, um, while Liberals and Labour, um, while the Liberal Party have not, you know, said anything condemnation, um, towards the Israel government and, you know, Labour have more or less given a bit of soft position, um, the Greens po- politicians have once again spoken most strongly against the violent treatment of Palestinians with Adam, Adam Band and leader Richard D. Natale calling for an end to the siege of Gaza and for Australia to recognise Palestine and Palestinians' right to return home. Uh, Senator Lee Rhiannon also put her name to a video produced by the Young Maritime Union of Australia members that condemns Israel's violence and calls for solidarity with the Palestinian people. Um, sadly, there have been no official calls um, to end arms sales and collaborations in research and development between the two countries. Unlike Ireland and South Africa, Australia has no plans to halt diplomatic corpora- cooperation with Israel. Um, what um, some are now um, are calling for the Trump massacre in which 62 Palestinians um, were murdered in the past several weeks um, could still be a turning point by by which, you know, how the international community calls Israel to account for its actions. If it is called to account, the deaths of 62 unarmed Palestinians is not a great way for Israel to advance the argument that it has the right to defend itself and secure its border against um, terrorist infrastructures and the so-called democratic graphic threat of the Palestinian population. And of course, you know, reputational damage to Israel is not enough without the economic and political consequences of a enthusiastic um, and, you know, wide-ranging boycott and divestment sanctions movement. Britain, for example, has Labour um, leader Jeremy Corbyn calling for arms sales to Israel to be examined, unlike any Australian politicians. Um, outside the, the grim workings of the arms market, the BDS movement is growing and recent victories like art director Vilelgo Rodrigo's pulling out of any Israeli sponsor show and musician Gilberto Gill refusing to perform there are great steps forward. Artistic um, support for a boycott of Israel is a big growth area for BDS and and that includes performers like Wolf Alice, Shame and Portis are lending their support to artists for Palestine. Having used um, big events like the recent uh, Giro di Atli and the Eurovision Sound uh, Eurovision Song Contest as cover for its atrocities. Israel is looking forward to a proposed friendly football match against Argentina on June 9th. And, you know, the BDS movement is looking to change that with a targeted campaign, including to rager uh, stars like Lionel Messi, who also serves as a brand ambassador for an Israeli startup. Um, and, you know, some of the responses by Israel has been to try attempt of what they've done is, you know, has been attempts to smear um, Palestinians' reputation by claiming that participants in the Great um, March were Hamas operatives or had been pressured by Hamas into carrying out a dead baby strategy to win international sympathy. You know, the Great March, you know, was not um, Hamas promoting a dead baby strategy. It was initiated by the people of Gaza who belonged to different polit- associations and political parties. Many were not members of no political body at all. Even if there was, even if there is proof um, that a dead, unarmed Palestinian was a member of Hamas. It is no way justifies the death. The Hamas book boogeyman scares people into parading the usual mainstream line when it comes to Palestine, and it has become an all-purpose smear to limit political politicians' engagement with the Palestinian cause. Israel has been around for 70 years, and Hamas has only been for 30. And, you know, the kind of crux in the conclusion here is that, you know, we need we need you know, to, to put, to build kind of solidarity and, you know, to build the campaign against, you know, the Israel's against, Israeli's aggression against um, the Palestinian and the continued occupation um, by Israel onto Palestine, you know, we need, um, you know, we need the, um, internet politicians um, internationally to speak out because ultimately, you know, a lot of them, a lot of politicians, a lot of, um, a lot of countries are compliant in, you know, Israel's con- um, constant human rights abuses of Palestine. Palestine. All right. Um, I'll quickly, maybe for the last, um, several minutes of my program, I'll play a quick kind of song, um, by Matt Pops. We go for Endless Summer by the Jezebels. Alright, so we're getting um, into the end of our program now. Um, I'd like to thank um, all, our list, um, all our listeners for tuning in um, and apologies for some of the technical kind of issues that um, popped up in the program. Um, 
bit hard um, to do it by yourself, but hopefully next week we will be back to um, two programmers on the show, so we should have no issues next week. Um, I'd like to thank all our guests um, for coming on to um, for talking to us on the program, um, and I'll just say, listeners, to um, for the for the interview that we weren't able to get um, in the last interview that we weren't able to get in for for at eight ten a.m. We'll probably hopefully have that um, him lined up um, for next week to talk about his trip to India and um, the political situation and experiences that he had as a as a representative of Socialist Alliance for um, the Communist Party of um, India, Marxist um, Liberation. Um, yeah. So, um, I'll quickly... Yeah, so I think that's the end of the program, and um, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.